Amen. Well, certainly a fitting prayer and uh, song as we come to God's Word this morning. So I would invite you to please turn to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to begin at verse 24 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there are copies in the seats in front of you. And uh, we have a couple of different editions. So it's going to be either page 924 or page 983. And uh, Colossians chapter 1. And you see the title of the sermon this morning, Treasuring Christ the Treasure. Uh, before we get into things, just want to say a word of thank you to those of you who are praying for um, myself as well as for Lori over this last week. I was back in Wisconsin visiting my elderly dad, and Lori was here holding down the fort. So thank you so much for your prayers. Uh, the trip went smoothly and safely. Many of you know uh, my dad. I, well, you don't know him directly. Some of you have met him, but uh, he's 97 now. I love him, respect him dearly. He's yet to bow the knee to Christ, and so continue to pray for his salvation. Uh, one little interesting providence I'll just share with you before we get into things. I had breakfast uh, one morning that I was there with a pastor and his wife in town that I've gotten to know over the last few years and become good friends with. And I think some of you know this story. I've probably mentioned it before. Uh, but uh, he's the pastor of a little Baptist church there that I visited a few times when I'm there over the weekend. And it turns out that his elderly mother lives in the Sacramento area. And uh, she went into hospice care a few months ago, and uh, I've had occasion to get to know her and visit her. Uh, she's a sweet, uh, precious believer with a vibrant testimony. Her name is Kay, uh, but she lives about 10 or 15 minutes from my house. And then Pastor Ed and his wife, Robin, back in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, of all places, they live like a mile from where my dad lives. So just an interesting providence in uh, the connection that we have with, uh, in, in my case, with Ed's mother and uh, for Pastor Ed with my dad, whose name is also Ed. So you never know what the Lord has in that, but just an interesting providence. Well, we are in Colossians 1 this morning, and as we get into the text, just to remind us of kind of the flow of thought of Paul as this letter is unfolding, uh, the section that we're going to look at this morning, beginning in verse 24, uh, really encompasses the last part of Paul's introduction in the letter, which goes back to the very beginning of the letter is where the introduction begins, and it goes through chapter 2, verse 5. And from chapter 2, verse 6 and following, that's really the main body of the letter. So everything that Paul has been doing in this opening section is really by way of introduction. And Paul begins the introduction by first thanking God for his work among the Colossian believers. And then he tells them how it is that he's praying for them. And then in verses 15 to 20, he writes what was likely a hymn in the early church, declaring Jesus's preeminence over both creation as well as the church. And then that's followed in verses 21 to 23 with some words of exhortation for believers to continue in the faith, to be stable and steadfast in the hope of the gospel. And then in verse 23, Paul ends there by saying that this gospel, he says, has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And those thoughts lead in to what he elaborates on then in verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. So let me read this portion, then I'll lead us in a word of prayer, and then we'll try to get into it a bit to understand what Paul is saying here. 
So let's hear God's word in Colossians 1, beginning in verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And then carrying into chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, even as we have just sung, that is the prayer of all your people, that you would show us Christ. And we know that Jesus is the focus and he's the fullness of all that you have revealed in your word. And so we pray that you would open our eyes to behold your glory in him afresh. Please stir our hearts to know and to trust and to supremely treasure Christ. Father, please empower and enable me to faithfully proclaim Christ, even as you have made him known in the text that's before us now. And we trust that you will do this for your glory in Christ. Amen and amen. Let me ask a question as we get things moving this morning. It is this, what motivates you? What is it that motivates you and that keeps you going? Even thinking about today, what motivated you to get out of bed this morning and to do whatever was necessary to get yourself here today? Now, for those of you that are children among us here, still living with your parents, uh, your motivations were kind of determined for you by by your parents, weren't they? They had a role in telling you uh, that they wanted you to get up and get moving and to come with them uh, to be here. But for everybody else, something motivated you to get you going and to get you here this morning. And so what was it? What is it that motivates you? What motivated you even today? And I ask that question because what motivates us is so central and vital to everything in our lives. And for those of us who are Christians, We understand that there is much opposition that we face in striving to walk by faith in Christ. There is much opposition. There is much that can demotivate us, that can discourage us 
from trusting, treasuring, and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, just think about all of the things. We face battles with our own indwelling sin. We face challenges and difficulties with other people, both other Christians as well as non-Christians. And we face many kinds of trials and many griefs, many hard and painful circumstances. And we also, of course, face the trouble that comes from living in an increasingly godless and hostile culture all around us. And of course, we face opposition from Satan himself and his relentless schemes to deceive and to defile and to distract us and to discourage us. And so with so much opposition, with so much difficulty, we ask the question, what is it that can motivate us to keep trusting, treasuring, and obeying Jesus Christ? What can, what should keep us walking by faith in him? And those are really the very questions that our text today both addresses and answers. And so through the inspiration of God, Paul wrote to Christians in the city of Colossae in order to strengthen their faith in Jesus. And of course, because this is from God himself, it's not only his word to those Colossian believers that lived so many years ago, but it's his word for us as well. And that our faith would indeed be strong and stable and firm in Jesus. And this is really at the heart of how Paul prays for the Colossians, going back to what he said earlier in chapter 1. If you slip your eyes there up to verse 11, he prays that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And he prays that way because he knows that there is much that would pull away from those very realities. Well, so now with what Paul says here in chapter 1, verse 24, going into chapter 2, verse 5, he's aiming to motivate Christians, to motivate God's people to this kind of joyful endurance in faith. And he does this by magnifying the treasure of Jesus Christ. And so that helps us understand what the essence of what he's exhorting here is. The big idea, the main truth, we can say it this way. Faith joyfully endures by trusting Jesus Christ. That's at the heart of everything that Paul says here. Faith joyfully endures by trusting, by treasuring Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting, in this passage, you may hear that Paul is speaking of his own mission and of his own experience in relation to this mission. But he is saying what he's saying not to draw attention to himself, not to exalt himself, but to exalt Jesus and to strengthen faith in him. And so again, the heart of what he is exhorting is that faith joyfully endures by treasuring, by trusting Jesus Christ. Now in the passage, there are four prominent themes that Paul addresses that tie into this central point. 
And that's what we want to look at today. And let me just mention them and then we'll examine them in a little more detail one by one. Four themes related to his mission that help us understand why we should joyfully uh, endure in treasuring Jesus. So here's the themes. First of all, he speaks about the suffering of his mission. The suffering of his mission. And then second, he speaks about the stewardship of his mission, the stewardship of his mission. And then third, he speaks about the power of his mission, the power of his mission. And then finally, the struggle of his mission, the struggle. So those are the four main themes that revolve around what he's saying here, the suffering, the stewardship, the power, and the struggle of his mission. Now, what I'm planning to do this morning is look at the first three of those themes, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the fourth one in connection with what Paul goes on to say in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2. So that's the focus this morning. We're going to look at these first three themes of Paul's suffering, stewardship, and the power of his mission. So first of all, it's right there at the beginning of verse 24, he speaks of the suffering of his mission. And he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now he doesn't go into a lot of detail about the nature of his sufferings. He does do that in other letters that he wrote. But his point here is to emphasize that he is rejoicing in his sufferings for the sake of these believers. And of course he goes on to say some other things as well. Now, the book of Acts, which is a history of the birth and the growth of the early church, and it encompasses much of Paul's life and ministry, tells us much about the nature of the sufferings that Paul experienced. And in other letters that he wrote, he also outlines and details a lot about his sufferings. Probably the letter that, that contains the most descriptive things regarding his sufferings is 2 Corinthians. Let me just read you even what he says at the very beginning of that letter in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. He says this, he says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And then at numerous other places throughout the letter, he speaks in detail about some of the things that he suffered and experienced and those who were co-workers with them. And we won't take time to look at that, but suffice to say, it was overwhelming and more than any of us can imagine. Uh, being robbed, being shipwrecked, shipwrecked, being beaten, being thrown in prison. In fact, even as he's writing to the Colossian believers, he's in a Roman prison. Uh, but he suffered immensely. And so it's all the more remarkable that with genuineness of heart and wholeness of heart, he can say, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He knows what it was to suffer, but rather than being discouraged, rather than complaining and grumbling, Paul's inclination, Paul's response was to rejoice. 
And then he says, as he makes that statement, he goes on to say, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, this is a puzzling statement. It's probably the most debated uh, statement in this entire letter in terms of exactly what it is Paul means and, and, and what it is that he's getting at when he says this. Because on the surface, we might think, well, was there something lacking or deficient in Christ's afflictions? In other words, was there something lacking or deficient in his atoning work on the cross? Is that what Paul is saying? And that somehow Paul's suffering is, is helping to fill out and finish out the suffering of Christ? Well, no, that is not at all what Paul is saying. Even though the phrase is much debated regarding exactly what it is he means, there is absolutely no lack of or deficiency in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And Paul's been very emphatic about that already in this letter. In fact, if you just look at what he says in verses 20 through 22, he implicitly is speaking about the absolute rock-solid sufficiency of Christ's atoning work. So he says in verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He goes on to say, verse 21, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. Again, he's implicitly implying the absolute sufficiency of the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just a little bit later in chapter 2, in verses 13 and 14, listen to how he echoes and sort of elaborates on that again. He says in verse 13 of chapter 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so again, make no mistake, there is no lack of or deficiency in the atoning, redeeming suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ for sinners who would trust him. So Paul's not saying there's a deficiency in the work of Christ on the cross. And so then, well, what does he mean? Well, what he seems to mean by this phrase in connection with his own sufferings, which he says are for the sake of Christ's body, that is the church, what he seems to be referring to are the inevitable God-ordained afflictions that Christ will continue to suffer from his enemies until he returns again. The inevitable, God-ordained afflictions that Christ will continue to suffer from his enemies until he returns. In other words, Paul, as a member of Christ's body, you remember he's talking about the body of Christ and he himself is a member of that. He's recognizing and understanding that in a real sense, he participates in the sufferings of Christ himself. In other words, all of Christ's enemies who persecute Paul and who persecute other believers, which ultimately encompasses the entire church even as it continues to this day, Christ's enemies are ultimately persecuting Christ himself. 
And the point is to see that Jesus shares such intimate union with his people, with his body, that when his body suffers, Christ, who is the head, suffers as well. Now, for instance, Jesus spoke about this in John chapter 15. We won't go there, but in verses 18 to 25, he speaks about the fact that the hatred and persecution that his people experience is ultimately hatred and persecution that is directed to him. And so therefore, all the afflictions that Christ's people's faith, that Christ's people face between his first coming and his second coming when he returns, all of those afflictions fall into the category of what Paul says are filling up what is lacking, or in other words, what remains of Christ's afflictions until he comes. I think that's what he is speaking of. But within it all, he's affirming that he rejoices. He rejoices in these sufferings for their sakes. He's not discouraged. Again, he's not complaining, but he's rejoicing, rejoicing. And he's doing this because he's even exemplifying what it means to joyfully endure by treasuring Jesus to joyfully endure by treasuring Jesus because he knows that even in his sufferings, he's a part of God's perfect plan in Jesus. Well, this leads to the second theme that Paul then goes on to talk about, and that is the stewardship of his mission. Not only the sufferings of his mission, but the stewardship of his mission. And this continues from uh, verse 24, or the beginning of verse 25, through verse 28. But let me just pick it up with what he says at the end of verse 24, because he's saying that his sufferings are for the sake of his body, that is the church. And then this carries on into verse 25. He says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, uh, of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, with all that Paul is saying there, it's all tied into this matter of the stewardship that he had been given from God. So, in other words, Paul understood that his calling as a minister of the gospel was just that. It wasn't his own decision. It wasn't his own inclination. It was a stewardship from God. And this meant that Paul was to be a faithful minister of what God had entrusted to him, namely the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now already at the very beginning of his letter in chapter 1 verse 1, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as a sent one of Jesus Christ. And he says there that that is by the will of God. Paul understood that his life and that his ministry were not his own. He was a steward of what belonged to God. And he had been entrusted with this stewardship. Now, in everything that Paul says in verses 25 through 28, 
he speaks of three different elements of this stewardship. And so we need to zero in on these just a little bit to see the, the fullness and the significance of what it is that he is saying. He zeroes in on three different elements of this stewardship. He's going to speak about the purpose of the stewardship. He's going to talk about the message of this stewardship and then the goal of this stewardship. So all of this ties into the stewardship. So first of all, the purpose. What was the purpose? Well, it was ultimately and is ultimately the formation of Christ's body. The formation of Christ's body. And you see, that's what he's speaking about at the end of verse 24. For the sake of his body, he's referring to Jesus's body, that is the church. Then he goes on to say in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And so Paul knew that his faithfulness to the stewardship that he had been given was for the purpose of forming, of growing Christ's body. It was for the sake of his body. It was all tied to Christ. And this is why Paul was so burdened and why he was so sacrificial in his care for God's people, even as he expresses this throughout his letter to the Colossians. Paul knew, in other words, that to love and to serve Jesus meant to love and to serve Jesus's body, the church. You can't have one without the other. To love Christ is to love his body. And so there can't be any true love or service for Jesus without truly loving and seeking to serve his people, to serve his church. And so Paul rejoiced in suffering for the sake of God's people because he knew that his stewardship had the purpose of forming and of growing Christ's very body, the church. And this now leads to the second element of his stewardship that he goes on to speak of at the end of verse 25, and it carries on further, and that is the message. The second element is the message that he's given, and that is to proclaim Christ, to proclaim Christ. And so see how everything that he says at the end of verse 25 through verse 28 is about proclaiming Jesus. So he says, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And what he says there at the beginning of verse 28 really sort of summarizes the the essence of the message, right? Him, Jesus Christ, is who we proclaim. But notice then how Paul situates the proclamation of Jesus Christ with the totality of God's revelation, which he has now made fully known, as he says, with the coming of Jesus And with what Paul is saying here, he is connecting the coming of Jesus with all of God's previous Old Testament revelation. And this is what Paul refers to in verse 26 as the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. He's going to use that term mystery again in verse 27 and also again down in chapter 2, verse 2. 
And the whole context of what he is saying here makes it very clear that by mystery, Paul is referring to something that can only be known if God reveals it and makes it known, which he has in Christ. And just to tease that out a little bit more, he's talking about God's redeeming and reconciling purposes in Jesus Christ, which were always present in the plan of God and which were also prophetically anticipated throughout all of his Old Testament revelation. But now in the coming of Christ, it's all become actualized. It's a historical reality that has now been revealed and been displayed in Jesus Christ. In other words, God's glorious mystery, he's now fully revealed. He's now fully made known in Jesus. And of course, Paul is declaring here that Jesus Christ is made known not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. And meaning for everyone and anyone who would receive Christ. Well, then Paul specifies at the end of verse 27, he says that the riches of the glory of this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And what Paul is talking about here is the riches of the glory of what it means to have union with Christ. Christ in you. Christ dwelling in all of his people by faith. And again, all of his people with no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Anyone who receives him by faith, Christ dwells in. And this union with Christ is what Paul calls the hope of glory. And by this, Paul is talking about the certain and assured expectation of final eternal glory with God in heaven. In other words, the hope of glory is the substance of of what he says earlier in verse 5 of chapter 1 about the hope laid up for believers in heaven. That's the hope of glory. And it also connects with what Paul makes reference to in verse 12 of chapter 1 about the inheritance of the saints in light. It's the hope of glory, of being with God in his glory in heaven forever. And so this is the message of Paul's stewardship from God, that Christ is in you. It's the hope of glory. He's the hope of glory. And again, he summarizes this then in verse 28 by saying, him we proclaim. He's the message. He's the proclamation. It's Christ and only Christ and always Christ. And so this is what Paul does throughout his letter to the Colossians as he teaches and as he warns and as he preaches Christ. And we're going to see that as we continue to move through the letter. And even just think about what Paul has already done up to this point in the letter throughout all of this introductory matter where he has th- he's given thanks to God and he's prayed to God in light of his redeeming work in Christ and what he sees in the fruit of that among these Colossian believers. He's proclaimed who Christ is as the one who is preeminent in creation and preeminent in the church. He's talked about what Christ has done and his redemption accomplished through his blood, the, the peace and the reconciliation that's been accomplished, the forgiveness of sins in the work of Christ. And so he's preaching Christ. He's proclaiming Christ. And that's what he will continue to do. And so this is the message of his stewardship. It's Christ. It's the proclamation of Christ. 
And it's in the proclamation of Christ and people's response to Christ that the church is formed, that the body of Christ is formed and it grows. Well, this leads to the third element now of this stewardship that Paul identifies. And this is what we see at the end of verse 28. And this is the goal. This is the goal, the maturity of Christ's people, the maturity of Christ's people. And so you see what he says there at the end of verse 28. This is the, this is the goal, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so Paul knows that the purpose of his stewardship is for the forming and growth of Christ's body. He knows that the message that he's been given to proclaim is Christ in warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom And the goal in all of this is to see Christ's people mature, to to see them mature, to see them become spiritually healthy and fruitful and stable and firm in their faith in Christ. I like the way that one scholar describes this, uh, this sense of being mature in Christ. It means to, quote, be entirely focused on and directed by Christ. I think that's a good way of summarizing it, to be entirely focused on and directed by Christ. Now, of course, we we ask the question, well, what does this maturity look like that Paul is talking about? Well, just think about what he's already given thanks for among the Colossian believers in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 1. Those are markers. Those are characteristics of that maturity. And then in verses 9 to 14 of chapter 1, as he goes on to talk about what he's continuing to pray for the believers, those are indeed markers, characteristics of the maturity as well. Really, everything that he's going to go on to say in the letter has to do with markers of maturity. And I think in the most immediate context, if you look at what he says there in verse 29 of chapter 1, down through verse 5, he's talking about the the kind of maturity that he's burdened to see God bring about. And again, we're going to look at that passage in more details, but this is what he longs for. This is what he toils for. This is what he struggles for, that God's people would be encouraged, that their hearts would be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then he's burdened that they wouldn't be pulled away, that they wouldn't be deluded with false teaching, with plausible arguments that oppose Christ. And so all of this is talking about the goal. It's talking about maturity, to present everyone mature in Christ. Now, just as we think about this, one clear implication of this is that God is not only concerned with our profession of faith, He is concerned about that, but he's also concerned about our maturity in the faith. And until we go to heaven to be with him or until Christ returns, whichever occurs first, we will be in a lifelong process of growth. No matter how long, hopefully of growth, no matter how long we have walked with Christ, no no matter how mature we may be becoming, there is still plenty of room to grow. In fact, there's a reality in the dynamic of growing as Christians that the more we grow in Christ, the more we see how much we need to grow. And the more we treasure Christ, hopefully all the more, because we realize he is our hope. But he wants us to mature. 
And so again, this is why we see in all of this, the the essence of the point that Paul's making is that faith joyfully endures by treasuring Jesus Christ. And so we've seen the first theme that Paul addresses is the suffering of his mission. He rejoices in his sufferings because he knows that his sufferings are part of Christ's plan for him. And then that leads him to address the second theme, the stewardship of his mission. And he elaborates on this stewardship by talking about the purpose of the stewardship and the message of the stewardship being Christ and the goal being the maturity of Christ's people. Well, this brings us to the third theme that Paul speaks of, and it's important that we not miss this, and that is the power of Paul's mission. And so he's quick to say in verse 29, this is where he speaks of this. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, as Paul does in so many other places in a lot of his letters, he speaks both of his rigorous, relentless, hardworking, struggling toil, but he's quick to acknowledge It's the power of Christ. It's the energy of Christ working within him. And even again, just thinking about the nature of the kinds of things that Paul suffered, the things that he was subjected to physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and on down the line, and all that he suffered, and yet he persevered joyfully. He joyfully endured He's acknowledging it's all because of Christ's power. It's all because of his energy that he powerfully works within me. And it's intriguing too that as we hear Paul speaking here, as we hear him say in so many other places, probably one of the most uh, rich places as I've already alluded to is in his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter uh, to the Corinthians that we have in scripture, that he acknowledges his weaknesses. He acknowledges his frailty. He acknowledges his vulnerability. He acknowledges his spiritual impotency and his total dependency upon Christ. And see, the reason he could increasingly experience even joy in his sufferings because it was because of Christ empowering him, enabling him, helping him. He knew and he joyfully endured because of the complete sufficiency of Jesus Christ, who was Paul's ongoing power and ongoing provision. And there's an implicit sense in which Paul is saying this in order to spur on the motivation of God's people to likewise joyfully endure by trusting, by treasuring Jesus Christ in all of his glory, and in all of his sufficiency. And it's very interesting as we see in the life of Paul, and we see spoken of in many other places in Scripture, and many of us can testify of this reality in our own lives, that in the wisdom and love of God, the very sufferings that he ordains for us become the means by which he draws us into a deeper dependency upon him and a greater likeness to him. And that's his wise, mysterious, wonderful, hard, painful work in our lives, that we would know more of dependency upon his power. 
Remember what Paul said, the passage I read earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that he acknowledged that, that the crushing weight of the burdens that they were experiencing were in order to help he and his co-workers not trust in themselves, but to trust in Christ, to trust in Christ. And again, this is what Paul has said earlier in verse 11 of chapter 1, uh, that he's praying for the Colossians about, among other things. He says there in verse 11 that you would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He wants God's people to be uh, suffering joyfully, enduring such suffering joyfully, and to be doing so by trusting and treasuring Jesus Christ. So, beloved, these are the first three themes that we see Paul speak about. And again, because there is so much in what he goes on to say in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, regarding uh, the struggle of his ministry and the implications and significance of that for us, we're going to save that for next week. But we see him speaking of the suffering, of the stewardship, and of the power of his mission. And all of this is around the, the central point of helping us who belong to Christ to understand how to joyfully endure by trusting and treasuring Jesus Christ. And so just as we draw this together, think again about that question I asked at the beginning. What is it that motivates you to keep going? Is it just sort of a a reliance upon yourself to just kind of grit your teeth and do whatever you got to do to get out of bed in the morning? Is it a sense of overwhelming guilt or fear or worry or the expectations of others or whatever it may be? Sometimes I'm sure all of us to varying degrees even know what it is to, to not get out of bed in the morning. To maybe be so overcome, so overwhelmed, so uh, discouraged, so despondent with things that we've lost any sight of Christ at all and it's just hard to even move. But you see, God calls us to faith. Whatever our present circumstances, even as Paul, as I've said, is writing this letter from a Roman prison, he's not discouraged, he's not despondent, he's not, uh, he's not complaining, but he's rejoicing because he's trusting in and treasuring Christ. And so he's enduring joyfully to that end. And as we close this, let me, let me just think of a few brief areas. I'll just mention these as some very specific areas that enduring joyfully by treasuring Christ comes into play in our lives. Think, first of all, about just obeying Jesus' commands. Obedience flows from faith. And any act or any thought or any inclination of disobedience is ultimately an act and an inclination of unbelief. Unbelief. Jesus said in John 14, verse 21, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me, he says, will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Our obedience is connected with our faith and our enduring joyfully by trusting, by treasuring Jesus. Another area this comes into play, these all very much relate, has to do with fighting sin. Has to do with fighting sin. In Romans chapter 7, near the end of the chapter, verses 14 to 25, we won't go there, but Paul talks about his own fight with sin. 
And I'm persuaded very strongly that he's talking about his experience there as a Christian and the battle that he faces between the indwelling spirit within him as well as his own indwelling sin. And at one point he just cries out, what a wretched man that I am. I want to do good, but I don't do good. And I end up doing the very bad that I don't want to do. I'm just wretched. He says, who can free me from this? What's the answer? Thanks be to God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, is what he declares in verse 25. It's in Christ, it's through Christ that we fight sin. This also applies to how we face trials, of course. How we face trials. God wants us to constantly look to Christ and to endure joyfully by treasuring him, looking to him, trusting him, praying to God through him, and seeking him. That's why, as Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 1, we can be joyful in the midst of our trials if we're looking to Christ and if we're looking to him. This certainly also applies to the area of bearing witness for Christ. We need boldness. We need courage. We need wisdom in proclaiming him to those who don't know him. Paul talks about this in chapter 4 of Colossians, verses 2 through 6, and he solicits prayer, both encouraging the Colossians to be praying for themselves and others, and he's asking for prayer for himself to be bold and faithful and bearing witness of Christ. So you see, in all of these areas, it always comes back to, are we motivated by trusting and treasuring Jesus Christ? That's the message that he wants us to hear. That's the message that he has for us. To know Christ as such a Savior who is faithful to support and sustain us whatever he ordains and that we would joyfully endure by trusting and by treasuring him and coming alongside one another to helping each other, to helping each other do that as well. Let me lead us in prayer. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you that he is the treasure of all treasures. And Lord, we need your help not only to hear these things, but to, to really see your glory and your splendor and your majesty in Christ. Again, even as we sang earlier, that you would continually show us him and help us to lay hold of him by faith. And for every single one of us, whatever our present circumstances are, uh, that we would be seeking and, and be empowered by you to joyfully endure and to treasure and to trust Jesus all the more. Father, forgive us and cleanse us for ways in which we've not done that. We thank you that you are gracious and merciful and that you continually call us to, to know your mercies in Christ and to continue to press on and to walk in the things that you've called us to. We thank you for the time you've given us to share this morning, and may our resolve in trusting Christ and treasuring him alone be that much fuller in his name. Amen and amen.